Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Zigzag Claiborne. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Brian Humphrey. Say it again. <laughs> Say it again. I'm Brian Humphrey. Yes, you are. <laughs> and you have tuned into a very special edition of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes With. That's right. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for Dave and I to dive into the dark and murky waters of the writer's craft with the premier hope of taming the leviathans of the deep. And this week's author is as cool and rhythmic as his name suggests. Oh, sweet baby. It is so true. But let me just bask. For a moment, <laughs> dear friends, those of you that have joined the podcast in recent years, well, in the last year, you haven't heard this gentleman's voice, but the veterans in the back, I can hear them. Can you hear them, Brian? They're going, Brian's back. I thought that was the gas leaking. <laughs> yes, there, there could be that too, but I think it's, <sighs> yeah, that's, that's what it is. I hear that. <laughs> I am so delighted that we were able to find a, a mesh of time when we can we can reclaim the legacy of the roundtable and 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 share an episode, man. I'm oh so grateful. Lord. I can't tell you how excited I am to have actually been able to carve out time to do this. And Between being a daddy, being a teacher, and, and writing your own works, uh, you're a busy dude. But but we made this work, so let's dive into this. All right. Okay, let's do it. All right, now, Brian. This is truly an auspicious moment for your return, because uh, there's really someone I want to introduce you to. <laughs> uh, now, I'm, I'm, I'm always excited to introduce our guest hosts, but this particular introduction is important to me, because writers, whether they choose to admit it or not, are idea freedom fighters. Okay, we every word we write that we toss out into the world is an idea grenade with the pin left in. And then when somebody reads those words, they pull the pin and we get the chance to blow their mind and rock their world. <laughs> and Brian, our guest host is the Che fucking Guevara of idea freedom fighters. All right. Check his blogger profile. It says so right there. Freedom fighter. That's his occupation. His, Writing warrior. That's right. That's right. Yeah. His words detonate and knock the dust from the shells of your brain. Now, if you Googled his real name, you'd likely get a page filled with references to one of the writing pseudonyms of the author who wrote, among other things, The Hardy Boys. <laughs> now, that shit was not going to fly for this bold literary evangelist. <laughs> so he took a name that no one else could possibly have, which is actually very appropriate. His name, like his fiction, is unlike anything you've ever heard. As a child, and there is some silver in his mane, so this was back in the day, he would record Star Trek episodes on an audio cassette recorder so he could play them back at his leisure. <laughs> He'd even drop out the commercials so he had uninterrupted story flowing into his ears. The dude was rocking audio fiction before audio fiction was cool. He was also big into the Twilight Zone. And as he and his tastes matured, Asimov and Harlan Ellison. 
Now, that particular alchemical combination of influences will tell you a lot about his storytelling DNA. It wasn't just the starships and cool tech. It was the people in the story that hooked in the dream catcher of his imagination. And that deep love of character and the infinite facets of its expression would stay with him to this day. He took up writing around 12 years old, and by then he was a voracious reader, consuming any and all stories that captured his attention, not just sci-fi. Now, Brian, do you remember that kid in your grade school English class who actually got excited when the teacher assigned Hamlet to the class? (laughs) (laughs) That's a silly question, Dave. (laughs) Were you that guy? I was that guy. Of course you were. Well, so was our guest host. Uh, and then one day his mother blew his mind by saying, you read so much, you might as well write a book. And this was a paradigm shift for him, opening up a whole new way to engage with the stories. Now in high school, he didn't have time for the schoolyard thunderdome of social status and pecking orders. He was already blazing his own trail, inspired in part by one of his teachers, Ms. Smith who demonstrated to him that intelligence and joy were not mutually exclusive. He'd carry that lesson into college, where he studied English lit and creative writing at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. He'd been working with various forms of writerly expression, searching for that sweet spot from whence his inspirations could best be launched into the world. His first professional sale was actually for a poem back in 1987. Now understand, he doesn't consider himself a poet. So as he's cashing the check, he's thinking, holy shit, they paid me for this? So I would imagine it came as quite a shock when later he won the Agnes Brunton Award for a different poem. Now, dude says he's never considered himself a poet, but friends, let me set the record straight. I've read his work. I follow him on Twitter and Facebook. Dude's a poet. He just writes his poetry in paragraphs and chapters instead of stanzas and iambic pentameter. Now, as he moved forward in his life and in the world, he continues to stretch his literary legs. His writing appears in The Wayne Review, Flash Shot, Reverie Journal, Stupendous Stories, and numerous online attractions. He publishes his novels independently, like Neon Lights, a street-lit satire described by one reviewer as, and I quote, If Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett, and Chris Rock had a three-way bastard love child and raised him on nothing but sweet potato pie and bourbon, this is what would ensue. I will pause while you all run out to Amazon and buy Neon Lights, because who wouldn't want to buy it after that description? Holy crap. He publishes By All Our Violent Guides, described as, and I paraphrase here, a book to be savored, pondered, and used to measure our own lives against. And he published Historical Inaccuracies, a collection of short stories that I personally describe as the equivalent of scrubbing the inside of your skull with mescaline, putting James Brown, David Bowie, and Rachmaninoff on a looping playlist, and then reading back issues of Doonesbury and Bloom County. It blew my mind, and friends, it will blow yours too. Now, his most recent release in the world is the Brothers Jetstream, Leviathan, and it's been a labor of love for him for many decades. 
Back in his college days at Wayne State, he chanced upon a group of white students speaking animatedly on some topic. Intrigued, he, a tall, strapping black man at the time, approached the table to inquire about the nature of their conversation. Said conversation stopped. And I I don't mean it trailed off. It didn't trail off. It didn't sputter and fade like a dying candle. It was snuffed out completely. Now, you can imagine what was going through his head at that moment, but you'd be wrong. (laughs) His first thought when confronted with this scenario was secret enclaves. In that moment, the character of Milo Jetstream was born, a man on a mission to destroy secret enclaves everywhere. Now, the name stuck with him for years, and in his frequent ruminations about Milo, he conjured a brother, Ramses. Now, if you have two black brothers named Milo and Ramses Jetstream, there is absolutely no way they are not going to be adventurers against the status quo and raconteurs of mystery. And after he wrote Neon Lights, he decided he wanted to bring the ladies featured in that story and introduce them to the brothers Jetstream and weave in some bright speculative fiction threads along the way. Doubtless, that's where the telepathic whale was introduced to the story. (laughs) He wrote the story. He rewrote the story. Then he trashed the lot and he wrote it again. And finally, he felt the heat coming off the pages that he needed. He knew he was finished and he put it out in the world. The Brothers Jetstream Leviathan is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, and where all fine eBooks are sold for your next literary adventure. Now, To give you an idea of where he's coming from, he was interviewed by award-winning writer Brian Tao Wara. And Brian, if I mispronounced your name, I apologize, man. I'm doing my best. On, On Brian's blog, On the Other Side of the Eye, and he was asked to give some writing advice. He offered two bits of writerly goodness. The first piece is an echo of one of his mentors from Wayne State, the late Professor Samuel Astrakhan. Ask yourself, what is your gift to the reader? Why in the hell are you putting pen to paper? And the second advice was, if you're thinking of presenting your beginning work as being like such and such, guess what? Agents, publishers, and readers already have such and such. Such and such is selling. If you're not going to bring you then stay home. You needs to be well-read, open-minded, inquisitive, and inclusive. Otherwise, you're a drab paper cutout on a very colorful, 3D, vibrant world. My advice is to tell yourself, welcome to the world of 3D printing. Amen, brother. He drinks Gorange juice, which is grape juice and orange juice and two cubes of ice, shaken, not stirred. His favorite movie is The Princess Bride. He is a canonical eater of butter pecan ice cream because anything else is heathenism. He worships at the altar of deep dish pizza. He loves to garden and beat his nephews with Nerf swords. And he has an unnatural fixation on Joyce Carol Oates. Dear friend, Please welcome to the big chair 
here at the round table, Zigzag Claiborne. Zig, brother, I know I just met you on Facebook what, just a few freaking months ago, but it feels like you're a brother from another mother, man. I am so delighted that you were able to make time and join us on the round table. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I am delighted and honored. <laughs> honored. I appreciate that, man. Now, let me ask you something. I, 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 Like I say, I've been following you for a while here, and periodically Joyce Carol Oates pops up in your feed. I'm just real curious. What's your thing with her? You know, it's nothing but love for Joyce. It's, you know, she's been writing for, what, two, three hundred years. So I'm just like, my little pokes are just out of respect for her. <laughs> and, and, and envy. And envy, right? And envy. envy and, and definitely love. I mean, I like my little scrawny bony chicks. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, and who doesn't, right? All right, let's roll into this thing. I'm, I'm not going to bandy words or waste any more time. Let's get into our 20-ish minutes with zigzag claiborne i'm going to set the clock here and i guarantee you we're going to ignore it <laughs> so, we always I, do we I all know. I'm, I'm still feeling the afterglow from that introduction oh thank yeah. you were, were there any egregious errors that should be addressed before we proceed not a one. Ah, oh, sweet sweet i, I don't I, know dave go, going so far as to point out the 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 conical ice cream <laughs> You have gotten about as stalkery as stalkery can be, my friend, and I'm loving it. I think it's great. I'm, I'm just waiting for, for you know, ATF or FBI to roll in and say, Mr. Robinson, we need to pull you aside. You, you are the NSA. <laughs> I am I am the DSA. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm the Dave Stalker Agency. There we go. <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right, Zig, let me, let me ask you something. Um. In one of your interviews, you were quoted as to saying, we are, uh, in, in reference to what's coming up in speculative fiction, uh, uh, you, you commented that, and I quote, we are going to see more inward-bound stories, stories that focus on the importance of inner change to affect current and future outer change. And, dude, that's a potent statement, and and one that, that I would love to see happen, but I... At my stage in my writing and my awareness of the industry, I don't see how that happens. Could you expand on that a little bit and give us, give our listeners some insights into as they make their way down their particular story path, how they, how they can leverage this new vision into their stories? Well, I think mainly this is going to come from, and you know, I, you know, this is the buzzword now, but diversity. I mean, like I said, I'm a, I'm a big black guy from Detroit. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I'm six feet two. People look at me and they don't think, oh, this guy, you know, he, he knows every episode of Star Trek. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I will, you know, Tholian web anybody anywhere to death. <laughs> you are a nerd. There's no doubt I about am, it. I am the uber nerd. <laughs> and I think that's where the idea of going inner is going to come from. We've had decades of stories where, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them are, the story is about the ship. The story is about, hey, look, I created this cool world. It's like, you know, everything fits, everything works. You know, you can hear my schematics. We're getting to a point where nobody really cares about that anymore. You know, it, it's got to go inward. It's like, yeah, okay, your ship is cool. Your, your world you created is cool. But the world we're living in right now is not cool. And that's where story comes from. The story comes from taking what's here, transforming it so that we can move forward. Are you talking about character-driven stories at this point? It's character-driven, and it's also 
a lot more psychology happening in it. I mean, there are there are some authors right now who are doing some amazing things with that. Where, and it's not that where they're sitting around and getting these tomes out and discussing Jung. I mean, Nettie Okorafor is one where when you get one of her books, she doesn't waste any time setting up. Okay, this is the world. This is blah blah blah. She puts you into the, ca- the character's mind in a lot of ways, kind of like a uh, Octavia Butler did. You're the, you're this character. This is what happens. How does this affect you? It has zero to do with this is your quantum drive, blah, 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 blah. It is how are you going to change? What, 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 is, what is in you that needs to change that will drive your story forward? If this is the direction that it's going, then how are we going to keep from blurring the line between genre and literary fiction? Because oh. it sounds to me like that's kind of the domain of lit fic. Um, and if we're moving away from a lot of what made genre fiction great, is that the death of genre? It is. I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. Genre is a, to me, that, that alchemical change is perfect for right now because you're seeing so many, I mean, just to think about back in the eighties, like with Buckaroo Banzai, which the brothers Jetstream owes a lot to that. I mean, that, that, that book that I wrote is kind of an homage to them. But that movie took every trope that was out there and said, you know what? Fuck you. We're just going to have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's what I did with this book. It's like, you know, we everybody knows the tropes. You know, you, you look at a, a movie. If you see the guy, you know, the blonde kid looking off toward the stars, you know, somebody's about to die in his family. He's getting ready to go have an adventure. Sure. Why do we why, why bother even writing that as the central focus of your story? Instead, mash something together have him looking off into the stars and a freaking dragon comes down and, and you know do whatever <laughs> i just eats him the and, and the story's about a dragon not yeah, about a kid <laughs> it's not about the kid at all it's about the dragons his journey of discovery <laughs> i think we are going to see a lot of that where the the genre starts to get blurred to the point where i mean it, it's always been kind of a, a bogus argument to me that Literary works, you know, with a capital L, that's the only place you go to actually learn something about the human condition. To me, that's no. I mean, I, w- like when I was growing up, Harlan Ellison taught me more about, you know, life and government and people than anything from Emily Bronte. So preach it, brother. You yes. cannot go that road anymore. And a lot of the fiction that now where people are trying to stick to that old, well, you know, genre is this. Those are the ones with that, I mean, that are going to be dinosaurs in the next five, 10 years because people are just like, we've seen this a million times. You are not telling me anything that moves me forward at all. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Zigzag Claiborne after this brief promotional break. The time has come, the villain said, to plot of many things. Of heroes, traps, and raygun blasts, of minions and power rings. And why the sidekicks always die, and why the supervillains make the best kings. Supervillain Corner returns for its epic third season, premiering October 31st and dropping every following Saturday. Subscribe through iTunes or download the show directly from super-corner.com. That's super-corner.com. We will be back. The villains will be back. We 
always come back. <laughs> Let's get back to the conversation with Zigzag Claiborne. So, in order to, to in order to affect that change, that transformation, that that doesn't come from the writers necessarily, does it? Doesn't that come from the audience and their receptivity to those stories, or is it, or is it the author's responsibility to to broaden the reader's horizon and widen their palate so that they can taste this this new vista, this new frontier of of literary awesomeness? I want to say it's a mixture of both. I mean, if the if the writer comes out and because like with Buckaroo Banzai, a lot of people will look at that and say, what in the unholy hell? <laughs> this, this movie makes no sense. Why do they make it? Then you will get some who are like, OK, I see what you did there. And that's what we as writers and creators are do. We got to we got to throw it out there and know that there are going to be some who say, OK, I see what you did. And those are the people who are going to take that you know little extra nugget of gold that we throw in there. And move forward with it, and, and and start pushing the market, saying, "I want more of that." I can see that. I can I can see that in in Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, perfect example. I mean, that is the most balls out crazy movie I have seen in a long time. <laughs> and, and I don't and, see a lot of movies. Okay, all right. What, well, what, what what about when it comes down to the numbers game, though? If you have five percent of the people that are going, oh, I see what you did there. That was that was pretty awesome. Which I I love it when I find that kind of stuff in a book. But if I'm a very small part of the audience that saw that, and the vast majority said, oh yeah, that was pretty good, but they totally miss the whole thing that you were doing with that. Then do you have to, as a writer, start kind of catering toward? that that other group in order to pull them along with you no because once you do that that you, you already you, you shot yourself in the foot i think the numbers are going to shift where that group who does not get it or does not want to get it they're going to be ignored because mm. it's you know the market is changing the market is shifting it's no longer a localized market it's global if you can't you know, if you cannot cater to the global market, so to speak, then you will fall by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. And and there will always be writers who will feed those individuals that don't get it, that are just looking for their, you know, give me my genre. I just want my genre. Right. And and, and oh, yeah. there will always be a market for that. Now, the interesting thing, Brian, that, that occurred to me is, as you and Zig were talking about that, was that this new culture of, of the tastemakers uh, where we, we no longer have gatekeepers in the forms of, of the big six, big five, however many there are now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. Um, but now it's it's the citizen blogger. It's the, the, the SF Signal. It's the podcasters. It's the bloggers and reviewers to whom the, the readership is turning to for, was this cool? Why, yes. Yes, it was. And here's why. And it's almost like this this grassroots re, realigning of taste and and interest and appreciation for the types of stories that Zig, as you say, are coming out more and more these days. I totally agree with that because we can use the movie industry as an uh, example. Before you would you would always get you know the studios will say nobody will go see a movie about yada 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 if you know if it's not you know the white guy saving the world. And yet you know when I was growing up, the biggest action star was Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. you know, yeah. I would have I would have paid money every week to go see a new Bruce Lee movie, but yeah, you'd have Hollywood coming out saying, "No, nope, we can't do that." Same now with the uh, I'm gonna call DC out Wonder Woman movie. 
we we can we can't have a, a female superhero movie. That that's the the gatekeepers are still trying to say that the audience doesn't want this, this, and this. And the audience is sitting back saying, dude, I love this, this, and this. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> True that. Well, and I think I think on the on, on you know, here we go waxing into the movie industry, but I think and, and I can tie this back into writing. I can actually do that. I'm that good. Uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think I think the movie industry is is intimidated at the idea of putting Wonder Woman on the big screen because the they have discovered how vocal and how frothing rage-filled uh, uh, fandom can be when they get it wrong. Right. And that will kill them. And by the same token, here's how I tie it back into writing. Uh, I, can, I can see writers uh, also feeling a bit of trepidation uh, uh the desire you know you you invoked the d word zig diversity oh that's a big <laughs> one it is a big <laughs> one it's huge and it's important and and i think you know anybody uh, i'm gonna offend somebody here anybody with a brain knows it's important that 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 the our audiences are are multi-gendered they're multi-racial they're multicultural, and in order to survive in the business you, you you can't put white dudes on a starship and send them off into space and hope for the best. I'm gonna I'm gonna amend that because okay. you can't put exclusively Thank white you. dudes yes. on a starship. See, good diversity statement there. Absolutely. See, and I and I've I'm guilty of the knee jerk. We have to go one hundred and eighty degrees in the other direction, and that's not what anybody's saying. Right, right. Never. In fact, um looking over your blog, Zig, I was looking at, at one of the th- one of your entries and you kind of touch on that that you know, if me as a white guy, if I'm going to write about a black character, there are so many things that I can do that are almost the pressures of society that I'm going, oh, I have to make sure that I include this, which is absolutely wrong. And I think one of the things that it was just one little phrase somewhere in that blog entry where you said, you know, people are people, right people. And I think that's that's the primary deal. That's it right there. I mean, it doesn't get any simpler than that. I, it, you know, there are times when I'll talk to writers in here in Detroit or anywhere, and you know, we'll get on the subject of diversity, and you know, and, that, and that's always cold for you know, how do I write you black guys, you you, you brown guys, you, how do I how do I do this? Right. And I'm like, okay, that character that you just wrote in the story, pretend that he has got a very deep tan. That's all. That's it. <laughs> that's it. There's no magic formula to, you know, you don't have to use dialect. You don't have. No, just write your characters. And where they fail is they try to write the character and they try to, you know, it's, it has to be telegraphed that this character is blah, blah, blah. You know, what, whatever you want to throw in there, woman, gay, trans, this character is that. And this defines that character. And in real life, I mean, the color of my skin does not define me at all. My sexuality does not define me. If I want to be a black man who's a gay in a book, I should be able to do that and still be able to kill a freaking dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, and and there's also the argument that, you know, they can be gay or black or, or Hindu or whatever and not have it be the pivotal part of the story. Right. They're just right. gay or yeah. they're just black and that's all there is to it. And it doesn't have to be a big deal, but it needs to be represented. Right. Because you, you get people who will, you know, the counter argument is that, you know, well, if you're doing that, you're, you're just pandering or you have to justify why is this character black? Why is this character gay? And I'm like, what the unholy fuck do you mean? Why is this character? 
I had with neon lights. I, I I showed that to an advanced reader, and there's a section in there where the main character is having a dream sequence, and he's you know he's talking to this interviewer on a, a book interview show, and she's asking him why did your book have to be a white you know a black book, and he and he's talking to this other author, and the other author is a white mystery writer, wildly successful, and so the black writer asked him you know. How many uh, white characters in your book? And you know, Mr. Writer says all of them. And you know, is your book a white book? He's like, no, it's just a book. <laughs> and right. that's that's the argument that we run into. Is like, as soon as you start to say, you know, anything outside of this, you know, white, then you have to to justify. Well, why is this person not white? And that what that does is say everybody else on the ship is marginalized. You guys aren't important until you have some use to us, the white. And that, you know, I will punch a person in the throat. Shit <laughs> out. Absolutely. So, okay. Absolutely. So uh, let me throw something in here. Cause at, at risk of being punched in the throat, <laughs> go for it. It's right. <laughs> I, one of the things that I think really trips writers up is we don't know whether when, when I'm writing a story, and I have a character and in my head, I'm, I'm a white man. That character, my main character is white. And then I start getting nervous and I think, are people going to look at me and they're going to say he only writes white characters? Um, is there a point where you go, well, this particular character, this is what this particular story calls for. If I make another character, another, um, ethnicity or whatever, and I don't, have and like you were saying you don't have to have a specific reason but if i don't have a reason for doing that myself then i start wondering am i doing it just for political correctness am i you know i grew up in california where there was um uh, affirmative action and this was when i was when i was in my teens and it was one of those things where you were hearing stories of of people who were not getting into universities um, in lieu of someone else who was a different ethnicity other than white, obviously, who um, had lower scores, but the, the university had to meet a certain criteria. And so as a writer, am I, am I now socially forced to do the same thing? And so is it, is it contrived? And it just, it gets overwhelming all of these different things that float around. And I think when we don't bring attention to the, the fear as a writer that comes with that, um, then we're ignoring a facet of this that, that we may be digging ourselves too deep when really all that it's about is telling a story. That, yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying on that. And that, that fear is important to note, though, because at no point when I do my writing, even when I'm writing as, a, as myself or if I'm using a character who's a woman, say, say I mean, I've sure. written... You know, women, black, black women, white women. At no point is there ever any fear on my part of, am I going to, am I bringing this character to life? Am I doing them justice? Because mm -hmm. in, in my mind, I've, I've, I've lived on this earth for almost 50 years. I've encountered women of all races. I've encountered women, different, various sexualities. It's no problem for me to write that. I don't see them as the other. And then when you start to see people, anybody as an other, then you start to think, all these things of, okay, am I getting this right? Am I getting this right? Am I getting this right? When sure. really all you need to do is write your character, write your story, you know? And a lot of the fear comes from the, I mean, to be blunt, a lot of it comes from, you know, the words 
another word that's getting thrown around right now is privilege. That, mm-hmm. that white privilege. And a lot of the fear comes from that. I mean, people are starting to see, okay, this isn't just some buzzword being thrown out. There is actually, there's, there's something to this mm-hmm. that, you know, a, a fish doesn't know it's swimming in water until you take it out. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the sucker starts to gasp and he's like, oh, hell, I need my water back. <laughs> and that's what a lot of people, writers, creators, everybody right now is in this point of being pulled out of the water and wanting to go right back into it. It's like, no, you, you know, grow some gills, fucker. You, it's, it's time to join. <laughs> right. Join St- the human race kind of thing. Stand up right, walk on the shore. Come join there us. Go. Get some little feet and dance with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me ask you, Zeke, and I get the impression from reading your work and, and from speaking with you that you're, you're a very organic uh, uh, discovery-esque writer. Can you walk us through your, your characterization process? How do you build and develop characters uh, with, with that authenticity and with that truth that they can stand alone and, and be who they are uh, as you've drawn them? I think what I mainly do, I start off with a feeling, with an emotion. And that's, that kind of goes back to what my professor told me about, you know, what, what is the gift that you are presenting to the reader? And for me, art has to elicit emotion. Because truly, for me, emotion is the only way we communicate with each other. I mean, it, 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 that's the basic way. And if you can't feel something when you're you're experiencing it, it's flat. And then that, for me, that goes with everything: food, music, art, everything. There's got to be some emotion to it. So I start off with the emotion and feeling. Like what what will I feel? Like the brothers Jetstream starts off with the two main characters. They they're tired. They're bedraggled. They've been in a huge battle that kind of happens off screen. Which is, you know, I do that intentionally. And the main c- character, Ramses, is sitting there and he's just watching us seagull fly and he is tired to the bone. And that's what I want to start. I wanted that, that weariness to say, what would make this character feel so weary? This guy who's got, you know, all these amazing abilities. He's, you know, got this crew. He's, he's an adventurer. What would make him so weary that he would just sit there and watch a seagull wheel around while he's on a cruise ship? And that's what I bring to every character, every story that I do. It's like, what, what, what makes you, I try to get into the minds of the reader. What makes you tired? What makes you happy? What makes you joyful? And if I can weave that into the story, then I've done something good. Now, are you considering it all? Do you, do you have a default reader in your mind? Is there, is there someone that you write to in your secret heart of hearts? You know, you know, the cliche is you always write what you want to read. And I do kind of do that. So I am my main, but my secret, secret, secret reader is Harlan Ellison. Huh. If, you know, I'm writing this and like, okay, if Harlan Ellison were to read this, how much of a cussing out would he get? <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> wasting the, his time. The hope of actually pleasing Harlan Ellison is, is just off the table right up front. Yeah, that's the, qu- right. and depending on what type of cussing out, because he may be giving you more of a cussing out because he likes it. You know, I can only hope. Good point. <laughs> Good point. But I, I write for people who dig the weird or the slightly off kilter. I, I, I mean, that's kind of where the name Zigzag Claiborne came from. I mean, I didn't, and I didn't create the name myself. It came from Minister Faust, another writer who's a billion times better than I am. So if you guys do not know Minister Faust, you need to look up Minister Faust because that is the coolest pen name in existence, period. Noted Which, and and Googling, <laughs> Googling as we oh, speak. The, the, man, the man's writing is like, damn, 
<laughs> but he gave me the nickname Zigzag Claiborne after I, you know, gave him my woe story about you know the the Hardy Boys and the motorboats for books and <laughs> <laughs> plus just Clarence Young is just a boring name. I mean, I've, I've never particularly cared much for my name. It's like you know, there's only so much you can do with it, and all the Clarence the Cross-eyed Lions jokes when I was growing up didn't help. Well, when I I told you when I when I friended you on Facebook, I said the one of the primary reasons I'm friending this dude is because his name is Zigzag. <laughs> and, try to live up. Oh, I have never looked back. Never looked back. And when we you are, attract Dave Robinson, you're attract, <laughs> yeah. and you're attracting everybody. That's right. I, I, I bring everybody. I bring. Everybody. Let me just throw this in real quick. It may not be a quick question, but one of the things that I I try to work with with my students as much as possible in in creating and generating a story has to do with conflict. And one of the things that I noticed when I was kind of perusing through Brothers Jetstream is the, the first few pages of a book are so important in hooking in your reader and establishing at least enough conflict to get your reader to flip the page so that you can start to build the story. And you do this really exquisite job of adding in all these little tiny strings of conflict. So my question that hopefully I can kind of pass some of this on to my students is what is the secret for creating believable heightened conflict without overwhelming the reader with too many levels too quickly? I've missed you so badly, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I will give you guys a moment. <laughs> you know, I, it, it kind of goes back to the whole thing about the emotion. Uh, you know, you, you can try to load up, so many, you know, I got to hit this point. I got to hit this point and this point, you know, those beats of conflict. Mm-hmm. You try to load that up too much and the reader gets bored because they know where you're going because they've been there a billion times. But if you can hit them with little bits of emotion of, of real character depth and feeling, that carries them along a lot further than saying, okay, the guy is being stalked. The guy is being, you know, he's been captured. Blah. They've been there before. What does this guy feel as he's being stalked? You know, the hero, if the hero is being stalked by something, what does he feel? And as the reader reads that, the reader relates to it on some level. I mean, it's, it's kind of like with the movie, um, Taken. Mm. You go through this whole thing where, you know, Liam Neeson is not doing anything original in the movie, but it's focusing on this guy's father. His daughter's gone. How does he feel? And it's not just him running around like Schwarzenegger, you know, I'll be back blowing people away. You know, he he has those moments where it's like, fuck, I cannot do this. You know, this even though he's sure. killing people left and right, it's still, you got my kid. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think people should focus more on is getting, again, kind of tying it back into that, you know, the inner inner world coming out in our literature. Get back into what is actually going on inside your character's head. You know, don't just throw them in a situation and say, okay, this is the situation. And now I have to get them out of that situation. Nobody cares about that situation. They've seen that a billion times. Tell me more. How does this character feel being in that situation? What is this character's mental and emotional state going to do to get him out of that situation? That's something we haven't seen a lot of. I mean, you know, the best the best fiction, be it book, TV or whatever, always gives us what's going on in the character. I mean, you got Kirk and Spock. You got, you know, I could go on and on about, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But. That is the basis of it. Give us emotion, and that will set up the conflict. That's awesome. That's fabulous. And 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 gentlemen, the the clock has has pulled out 
a weapon of, of some kind burst itself into flame and is hurling at me with, with invectives. So I can only assume that means we've gone way over time. Way what a shock. Uh, Zigzag Claiborne, dude, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for making the time and for sharing oh, so thank generously. You. Thank you both very much. This was great. <laughs> If you want me back anytime. Oh, awesome. see, and we've got that on tape, Brian. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we will hold you to <laughs> there, Brian, there was some awesome writerly goodness tossed about, bandied about freely uh, uh, over that last, I'm not even going to call it 20 minutes. Let's call it a half hour. Uh, uh, what, what's your takeaway from this episode? What What's sticking in your head? Um, it's, it's all about emotion. And, uh, as soon as he started talking about that, my brain immediately went to the stuff that I've been writing and the stuff that I need to go put in it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Very cool. So, so boom, flashlight over your head. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, for me, it was, you you guys kind of dropped a nuclear bomb on my brain when you said genre is dead, uh, or, or dying (laughs) that, that kind of blew my mind. And, and honestly, you know, when you think about it, when you think about the, the weight and gravitas and authenticity that has been creeping into genre fiction, uh, uh, and, and the sophistication of the stories that are being pushed to the forefront, I'm thinking, uh, uh, Anne Leckie's ancillary justice, uh, uh, in particular, which which blew my mind. I'm thinking Cameron Hurley's uh, uh, Mirror Empire and and her works. There are a lot of writers out there that are urging the readers to embrace a deeper, wider, truer story. And oh, yes. the 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 notion that that's pushing us past genre is something I'm going to have to wrap my brain around. I can see what you're saying intellectually, but uh, I I don't know what that means to me as a writer yet. So, so you, it, it means get out your black clothes. Cause there will be a day of mourning. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> Roger that. Roger that. Well, friends, here's the fabulosity. That is the round table. You, your, your brains are full. You're, you're already itching to grab a pencil and start reworking some of those characters and some of those plot arcs. I can hear you in there. Now here's the fabulous thing is that come back in seven days we're going to have we're going to have Brian back, <laughs> uh, but we're also going to have Zigzag Claiborne back. And we're going to throw into a mix a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer. And we're going to take all of this incredible brain mojo and we're going to have a brainstorm the likes of which you have never seen before. So but that's God, that's seven days. That is a long damn time, Brian. But it's well worth the wait. It, it is. Absolutely. But but I I. I'm an impatient guy. I know our listeners yeah. are. What, 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 can, what can they do, Brian, to, to, to make those seven days pass more quickly? Well, they could pace. They yeah. could yeah. binge eat. Yeah. Or they could get their butts in their seats and go right. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Go right. Put your stories in the world, people. Make the world a more awesome place with your words. And I will tell you, as I always do, dear friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for the awesome. Look for the, oh, hell yeah. Look for the fabulosity that you weren't expecting to be there. And trust me, friends, if you look for it, you will find it. We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content.
You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.